Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners, I'm your host, Najah. And in this podcast, we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we are going to explore the exciting world of 1980s Algerian music, the beautiful graphic design that graced the covers of the vinyls and cassettes, as well as the extremely cheesy ones. We will discuss the revival of that aesthetic and music in the current musical Algerian landscape, and how the role of what is, after all, a very recent history has shaped the way Algerian culture understands itself. These very kitschy cassette tapes and the stories that come with them are stories that have been creating the present that we currently have. Before we begin, I want to give you all a bit of a context. I'm Algerian, and despite currently living abroad, I have lived in Canada since I was very small. However, I do go back to Algeria every now and then, and I was very much raised in an Algerian household. And my culture is one that is incredibly important to me. And Algerian history often is almost exclusively seen through its lowest moments. And while these moments are important and traumatic and have shaped Algerian history, such as the extremely long French colonization or the Black Decade of Terrorism, all of these only in the past 200 years. However, I also want to show how, despite these events, Algerian art, culture, and heritage encompasses so much more than that. There is no way of avoiding talking about the French because it has impacted modern history so deeply. However, I do not want to reduce its history to only that. I am tired of looking for books and content on Algerian history and have having to really sift through everything just to find the ones that aren't focusing on French colonization. As if those hundred and so years are the only ones that define and characterize the entire history of the country. When there is an extremely rich history that happened before that, and after those periods that are barely explored. I am sorry for the rant. (laughs) So this episode, hopefully, will seek to paint a portrait of this very specific period of Algerian history through the lens of the music and the graphic design that graced the covers of those vinyls and tapes. So let's turn the clock back, all the way to the 1980s. 
It is in that vibrant and colorful decade that the movement and musical style called Rai would be truly born in the west of Algeria, in the beautiful city of Wuhan, most commonly known as Oran in the west. However, I really do prefer to call it Wuhan, so that is what we'll go with, because it's just prettier and I want it. So on a street corner in the western city of Wuhan stands a small building that houses the music label Disco Maghreb, created by Boalem Ben Hawa. The site where numerous of the main names of Rai have recorded and produced songs that are now classics of Algerian music, such names as Sheb Mami, Sheb Hasni, and all of the greats of that era. So it is a music label that not only housed the good part of Algerian music, but it's also a representation of the desire to preserve the musical culture of the golden age of Rai music in Algeria. It has given its title to a new song by the artist DJ Snake, a song that swept Algeria and the Arab world. It is a song that is a modern hymn to the past. Maybe we still need to tell our story again and again, in a goal to reappropriate it, to revisit it and to make it our own even more. After more than a century of colonialism, violence and generational trauma, This musical movement was built on social change in the years following the independence, but also on a historical foundation of the different genres of music that existed in Algeria previously, such as the Andalus style and Shabi, just to name a few of them. So it did not destroy nor replace anything. It simply built upon what already existed and constructed something new with the very sounds that were already present, all the while using the extremely new technology and tools that were shaking up the music world of the 1970s and the 1980s, and introducing new methods of creating music. This genre was built upon a strong musical foundation of Algerian music and The way the traditional and the modern constantly meld, it is a mixing of the past and of a particular musical tradition that values Algerian cultural identity. I think what is also important to note here is that Algeria is an immense country. It is the biggest country in the African continent and it means just by virtue of its size more than anything, that it has an astoundingly varied culture. The culture you will find in Algiers, the northern urban capital, will be different from the one you will find in the Saharan South, from dress, customs, food, to music and mannerism. Each region is unique, complex and absolutely beautiful. I know that I'm incredibly biased, however, I do think that valorizing and uplifting traditional customs and craftsmanship and highlighting cultural specifics of each region in terms of culture is incredibly important to combat the idea of a normalized and standardized globalized world. 
because that normalization often only implies a new version of modern imperialism and this guide to white supremacy. Instead of a world where culture is shared and heightened, instead it is flattened to a bland version of what should be modern culture, which ends up just being a repackaged version of white supremacy. When it comes to Algerian music, there is a terminology of artists calling themselves Sheb or Shebba. So when I'm talking about Sheb Hasni, Sheb Mami, Shebanedia, it is a prefix that is used by a lot of Algerian rice singers. And so they will adopt it and put it in front of their first name. So it's basically a stage name for these artists. So I thought I'd just explain it for those who are not familiar uh, with those terms so people do, do not get confused with the names I will be mentioning as we move on with our episode. So the key figures of Algerian music in the 1980s as, as we go on to the 1990s were young musicians and artists and producers that were ready to risk something new. So live music was officialized in a way with the 1985 Live Music Festival in Wahran, where it went from an underground trend and genre to a full-fledged sensation and national movement that really swept the whole country away. And we absolutely cannot talk about the musical and cultural change that was brought during this period without mentioning Sheb Hesni and his magnificent music. Sheb Hesni, born in 1968, rose to quick and phenomenal fame in a matter of a few years to truly become the figurehead of the genre and for good reason in a genre that was already doing new and innovative things with music and culture. He was doing something that was genuinely out of the ordinary, and he knew true success and obviously had a mastery of his art. Sheb Hesni was one of those flames that burned bright and quickly. His discography is full of hits after hits that most Algerians have heard as part of the general culture around them, and the sound of his voice was becoming part of the Algerian tapestry. Unfortunately, he was murdered in 1994 at only 26 years old of age. In the midst of the Black Decade and of the tumultuous time of terrorism and civil war in Algeria, and the dark uncertainty that came with it. The civil war lasted from 1991 to 2002 and was a conflict that had several groups such as the Algerian government, the army and various Islamist groups. So this decade of terrorism is much more complex and that I would be able to summarize quickly, but Suffice it to say that this is the context in which a lot of that music was produced and let's say that a lot of people were not happy about this kind of music being in the general public. And so he was murdered by the armed Islamic group in 1994. 
And this is so young for a life to end and I always wonder just how much music and art he would have given us if his life was not so tragically cut short. Imagine being a huge part of a movement that majorly disrupted and innovated Algerian music in a way that had never been seen before and all of this before you even turned 27 years old. I am always of the opinion that most career and lives are built slowly but surely and there is no need to put any pressure on oneself to succeed before a given time frame because we truly have to go at our own pace. But if there is an example of someone who had genius and talent and skyrocketed to the top, it's very much a Hesney. In my music, there is a loosening of the lyrics. Lyrics that will be used to consolidate an identity for the youth. In a way that was happening for the first time in the 20th century in Algeria, it is difficult to create a youth culture and identity when your country is under the rule of the French colonial power for so long. There needs a certain amount of safety and space for this sort of cultural change to happen within a society. And a colonized society does not have neither that space nor that safety. And so it makes sense that it is only through the 70s and the 80s that these changes started to occur. And it was during that era that, for a lot, were some of the best years in Algeria, that the youth had a culture of its own. And so it was a new youth culture that was entirely Algerian, with the influences of funk and the new technologies of the time, mixed with traditional sounds as well to create something very different. This music was the soundtrack to an era of prosperity and innovation and modernity. And when I talked to my parents and to my uncles and aunts who lived through the 1980s and remember it, they all have only positive things to say and some of it might be based in nostalgia, sure. However, I do think there is some sort of truth to it in the sense that life might have seemed a bit brighter than I don't think it was perfect, and I do think that everyone's eyes are covered in rose-colored glasses that made that era seem lovelier than it was. However, compared with what was to come in the 1990s, and compared to what was before the years between the independence and the 1990s were years of ease and happiness for a lot of people, the vocabulary in Rai music is one that is decidedly popular and one that is closer to street slang. Words and phrases that were not usually welcomed in the environment of the home near your mothers and fathers. It was a language register that veered more toward a quote-unquote vulgar one that wasn't usually used in songs and media. And even though it was something that was eventually going to be making it to the whole of the country and beyond, 
compared to the songs of genres such as shabby, where the vocabulary was more poetic and wordy, the lyrics of Rai's songs were more grounded, popular. The words that the youth and the people on the streets were using, instead of the more poetical and refined register of the earlier songs. So the vernacular in itself of what was acceptable in art was changing. If you go to Algeria, or simply on Instagram if you don't have the time nor money for playing digits right now, you can find several younger people in their 30s and their 20s who were not born or barely born in the heydays of light music, with accounts dedicated to sharing and showcasing vinyls and cassettes of the era, this collecting and curating, and ultimately this virtual exhibit of these covers and of that music, becomes a very real act of preservation and historical archiving, albeit done on an individual and personal level. The art of sharing those vinyls and cassettes, it is a hobby for many. However, it very much helps to bring interest toward the subject from people who would not otherwise have cared much about it, and especially since it's very much recent history. I also have to mention that most of the best donations and contributions to cultural institutions and the collective memory often come from someone who really was very passionate about one thing in particular, even more so when it concerns something that is not usually considered worthwhile by official cultural institutions, but still can have a huge historical value to make us understand the way our history is shaped and shapes us. I worked at the museum for a certain time and my current career is in the field of archiving and document managing. And I can safely say that external donations can be a very important and significant part of the development and expansion of historical archives. The way that people create collections and personal catalogs and records of the thing they love In this particular case, it is about music and the physical objects that bear witness to the memories of that era. But it is also about that love of the culture and the art of sharing within a community. These collected objects could be anything really. But the value that they get when they are grouped together goes up, not only the monetary value but the cultural and historical significance. It is as a collection that those items bear witness to a very particular subsection of history, and the way people group and order and classify the items they own and manage their own personal archives and documents of what they love and deem personally valuable is something that is extremely important to to me. It is the way that history not just the big history of wars and kings and dates of treaties and huge world-changing events, but the smaller things, the music someone loves and decides to keep, and the care people will give to those items. It is the way people lived, the dresses someone kept in an attic that talks of a life well-lived and well-dressed, 
All of these are important evidence of history, of people, of their lives and routines, and are as important to us for our understanding of history, of who we were and where we are coming from. So the story of small things that happen in the daily life of people is incredibly important and shapes in even stronger ways sometimes the course of the rest of history. In the book Retromania by Simon Reynolds, which by the way is a really relevant and interesting read on the way the musical world specifically does a lot of retrospectives and throwbacks, but mostly it touches on this global fascination that we all have for the past and the ways art continually recycles. When you look at today's culture, there is a feeling that the idea of the future does not really exist anymore and that there is a culture stagnation. We are in a period where we seem to constantly revisit the past and the last promises that were given to us back when the future seemed to be bright. I think during the 1980s and the 1990s and even up to the early 2000s, there was globally this general sense of the fact that things were going to get better. However, I do feel that there is a sense of doom that has submerged us in the years since, with climate anxiety, cost of life crisis, housing crisis, a global pandemic. I think that even if hope hasn't been lost, I really do not think at all that the world is hopeless. I am not at that stage yet. However, I also find it hard to be able to imagine what the future will look like. I feel like even just a few decades ago, there was a sense of hope that better things were coming, that we were going to have flying cars and I don't know what else, but now I think it's maybe a bit more bleak than it used to be. And maybe we do need to look back at those times where things were looking up, where the colors of the cassette tapes were bright, where you could just listen to Shabjala's L'Etoile du Distroi, translated to the star of Rai Distro, which absolutely delicious. And look at the beautiful album cover of turquoises, oranges, and bright yellows, and feel something akin to hope. The music also is absolutely excellent, and I would totally recommend this album. Even though my personal favorite of Shab Jalal is Alabas. A beautiful song with Rai and Shabby influences about a long-lost love and the pain of separation and how love might torment you, but it's going to be okay in the end. Oh, how we do love our dramatic lyrics. And after all, sometimes you simply need to dance. Personally, when it comes to looking toward the past, 
I don't think it is necessarily a bad thing. As a historian, I have always been more interested by the things that happened before. I think the knowledge that we have of our past is something absolutely essential for the building of our present and our future. However, I know that I am very biased as a night historian and an archivist. But I will hope that as you're listening to an art history podcast, you're at least a little bit biased as I am on the topic. However, the loss of our collective future, of the idea of what the future could be, and the creativity and imagination that accompanies that idea of the future is something that is a bit worrying. I do love the concept of looking at the past and bringing it into our present. I think it's a good way of having a constant dialogue with our own history and our understanding of the past, as it is something that constantly shifts and morphs as our experience and knowledge grows. For Algeria and Algerian music, the era of the 80s and the early years of the 1990s were years that are remembered with fondness and a sense of nostalgia with a yearning for a long-lost time of happiness and progress before the Black Decade arrived and changed things very dramatically. But the question does remain, why do we look to the past? This is an attempt at a very short social history and visual history of Algeria and the Golden Age of Rai music but also about our current era's need of constantly looking to the past and the loss of the idea of the future that somehow occurred during the past 20 years. Of course, this subject, as most subjects that I touch upon during this podcast, could be the subject of a whole entire book. However, I will do my best to make it understandable within a short podcast episode. So I was born in the mid-1990s, and so I vividly remember an era when the world at large was collectively looking toward the future. However, without myself even noticing, I lifted my head only to discover myself in a world that thought only of the past and never about the future. Not really in a way that feels hopeful at last. People who are way more smarter than I am have spoken about this subject and if I could recommend only one book on the topic, it would be the book Ghosts of My Life, Writings on Depression, Hauntology and Lost Futures by Mark Fisher, which really is what kickstarted my reflection on this topic at all. Because the idea of the future that we had imagined for ourselves collectively, having been lost, is one that really touched something within me. After all, who among us has not thought about how? They used to think that they'd become a fashion designer or an architect. Uh, both things I thought I would be by now, but uh, life has taken me on other paths. And there's a lot of dreams and goals that we have for ourselves and futures for ourselves that never came to be. After all, there is only the present. But those 
alternate futures where maybe you are a successful architect or where you live maybe as a recluse beekeeper, who knows, are forever haunting us. I generally recommend all of Fisher's writing that I've read so far. I just think he has a very inquisitive mind and his writing goes deep into subjects of the modern world and the changes that it brings in terms of history, media, and culture. He unfortunately passed away in 2017, but the archives of his blog are still available as well as he has written a couple of books, all of which are on my list of books I want to read next. And his writing always features such magnificent deconstructions and critiques of our current culture. I cannot help but wonder what his thoughts would be on the culture of 2023 in a world that went through a global pandemic. And yet. And yet. In this book, Ghosts of My Life, Writings on Depression, Hauntology, and Lost Futures, I think he touches on something that is quite important. The word hauntology is a portmanteau word composed of hauntings and ontology, which is a part of philosophy that deals with the nature itself of being. The idea of hauntology was developed by Jacques Derrida in 1993. In his book, Spectres of Mars, a book about the legacy of Mars in Western civilization, we are haunted by a future past, by the dreams and hope that we used to have for the future. Because, in the imaginary at least, there is no longer any future. I think about retrofuturism and the idea of the future that the 19th century imagined and pictured with uh, Jules Verne and all of these authors. And I think about what our current culture thinks of the future and its bleak, a colorless chrome future in the midst of a climate crisis of unprecedented scope. No wonder the world is constantly looking to the past a good chunk of what is created nowadays and in the mainstream culture at least is just recycled stories and images. And I am fully aware of how many people are out there creating beautiful and original stories, but they have no chance of bringing it to the limelight because the studios do not want to take a chance on these new stories and original ideas. So I am very much talking about the culture surrounding the mainstream and how the only way to get a project made is often with the revamping of an original intellectual property. People are not given chances to new idea and they are not given the time to the few new ideas that are being produced to make their way into the world if the success is not immediate and striking. The project is often cancelled and ended almost immediately. There is a feeling, to me at least, that culture is both stagnant and yet faster than ever. However, we cannot deny that a lot of the way we have been relating to culture and the future and creativity has been to simply look back. 
Most of the music in Algeria was on vinyls and cassettes, but mostly on cassettes which were very affordable and easy to carry. There is something to be said about the physicality of the object that you had to physically carry and make space for, especially now that everything is streamable and on YouTube or any kind of website you might want to visit. While it is easier to simply click play on your phone or your music app or Spotify, there is a charm to the ritual of taking the time to set up a turning table and playing a vinyl, where you have to really experience the album in the order it has been chosen for you. And you can't really skip over a song if you don't like it that much. I mean, you can, but it's, it's a bit more effort, you know what I mean? And I think these sorts of analog processes ground you to reality and the physicality of the world around you in ways the streaming will never be able to truly replicate. And please, I love the convenience of being able to stream anything and everything I want at the drop of a button. Please do not misunderstand me. I am unfortunately a young lady with her phone uh, in her vicinity at any given moment. So don't think I'm one of these uh, people who are like, oh, everything was so much better before the internet. I absolutely do not believe that. However, there is still something charming and beautiful to taking the time to truly be in that moment and being able to touch the music in a sort of way. The quote of Brian Eno from A Year with Swollen Appendices is one that I often come back to and I think is continually relevant, but especially so on this topic of looking back to the era of vinyls and cassettes. So quote, Whatever you now find weird, ugly, uncomfortable and nasty about a new medium, will surely become its signature, CD distortion, the jitteriness of digital video, the trap sound of 8-bit. All of these will be cherished and emulated as soon as they can be avoided. And this is why, in an age where the use of vinyls and cassettes affords a tangible connection to the past and to a world that might have been, I think it can be easy to see the reason for 1980s sounds and influences in music. Those sounds and idiosyncrasies that used to be reviled become now an aesthetic point that is voluntarily added on to create a sound similar to the one heard on vinyl or tape. I think it is easy to imagine how things might have been if the 1990s in Algeria had not happened the way it happened. After all, those were violent and dangerous years where a lot of people simply disappeared and died and where tensions were running extremely high. And yet people were just living their lives (laughs) amidst all of that. I mean, I was there for the second half of the 1990s living in Algeria and I had a magnificent childhood. But still, the 1970s and the 1980s shine as a beacon in the darkness, a 
an era of prosperity and relative peace contrastingly. The album covers of those 1980s and early 1990s albums are always very colorful, bright, and often bear strong colors, yellows, oranges, greens, reds. The way that the layout of these albums are very simple and yet they have a very specific visual identity to them. These layouts very much have the feel of a collage. Those designs are not carefully made and very produced photo shoots. They have that very DIY and slightly handmade dimension to them. It feels grainy and real and something that was quickly thrown together and which might well have been because it was very much in keeping with the times where they had to put out music extremely fast and and just have something to put on the cover. Feels maybe slightly amateurish on a certain level, but it does feel like it was made with a lot of enthusiasm. Personally, I see them and there is an instant feeling of nostalgia to me. The music is absolutely iconic, but mostly they represent an era that is past and long gone, that was colorful and in constant movement, where things seemed like they were truly looking up after years and years of an oppressive colonial regime. The culture was in effervescence and the years seemed incredibly happy. The vintage and retro aesthetic that is currently front and center in the cover art of DJ Snake's Disco Maghreb is a direct reference to not only the music that came out of this era, but to that production house in that street corner in Wahran. But this is a tendency that does not apply exclusively to music and album covers in Algeria. When you look at the ongoing trends globally for everything, whether it is music, fashion, movie, design, and more generally culture, there is a definite tendency and leaning of nostalgia and perpetual revivals and revisiting older arts and trends to create a constant circle of inspiration and references that just keep coming back and again and again. Everything is new again and everything is old again and we just keep circling through history without truly innovating anymore. Of course, this is not quite true either. There are artists, authors and creatives of all sorts creating beautiful new art, stories and sound but you do have to make the effort of seeking them out. And I cannot say that this looks toward the past is necessarily always a bad thing either. After all, I am constantly looking back to the past and I do appreciate it when creatives are using the well of history as a basis for creativity. There is so much fun stuff to uncover and so much inspiration to be gained from it. Those album covers of finals and cassettes are ephemeral witnesses to a time that is now lost forever. The graphic design that traced those covers are still here, 30 and some odd years later. But there is something to be said about the anonymity of those graphic designers, of those artists that created 
these iconic images and visuals, but for now, forgotten. It is incredibly important for me in my art history practice to try to fish these people out of the obscurity and into the limelight, which is very difficult to do if their names are not anywhere into the process, and especially considered that commercial artists are often not considered artists with a capital A. And while I have not managed to find the names of these graphic designers yet, I will continue researching. These travelers still live on and are the testimony of their work. However, I do think it needs to be said that for a country whose history has been truly and viciously erased and bastardized by French imperialism, civil conflicts, corruption, and war, this particular outlook on the past is an important and joyful one. To reconcile yourself with your own history and culture, to try and feel the weight of that path, but not only the fragments that hurt, but the ways in which creativity, happiness, and innovation has also been flourishing. After all, we are a country that loves a beautiful song and an opportunity to dance, and these songs are linked between the past and the present, bridging the old and the new in a circle that is never-ending. The past is haunting us, and it will never stop haunting us. After all, we can never go back. We can only move forward. On this, my darling listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Imaginarium. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser known subject of art history and visual culture. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you think you will like it. And as the YouTubers say, uh, like and subscribe and all of that. <laughs> as always, all the relevant images will also be on all of our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Naja. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Chun-Li Capuchin-Uyan, Sam Hurst, Natalie Sluggett, Jameson Hollybert, Jack, Eminem, and Carter J. Kane. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day evening or night, and I hope to see you again very, very soon.